Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Before I turn it over to Eric, let me say how thankful I am for him and how excited I am today because I get to sit where you're seated and receive God's word, God's holy word, his good food for our souls. And so I'm so thankful for Eric and for his teaching that he is about to bring us, his preaching, and that I get to be fed, we all get to be fed. So let us receive God's word with all meekness which is the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Eric, you come preach for us. Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'll read this passage of scripture and I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. We will say thanks be to God because I pray that we are thankful for God's word. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Amen. Please be seated. Why are you here this morning? Is that a fair question to ask at the start here? But have we thought about that recently? Why are we here? There are many other things we could have been doing this morning, many other places that we could have been, perhaps in, in uh, other churches we could have attended. But why are you here this morning? And more than that, as we have gathered and we are here, I wonder if we've thought about what is it that we are to be doing while we're here together. 
Do we do what we've always been doing? Should we change what we're doing? Is it okay to change what we do? Are there things that we should emphasize? Are there things that if we didn't do them, we shouldn't even be called a church? Further, are there things which we value so much that would keep us here despite whatever else might divide us? I believe we have some answers to these questions, but they don't come from me. They come from God's word, so that's where we are going to go this morning. We go to God's word because God's word is breathed out by God. And we read that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we will hopefully answer these questions this morning and more that you might have about what we are to do as a church, what we are to value as a church. And we start with just one verse this morning. And just part of one verse this morning. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we read, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. All that we could learn from just this one verse, our emphasis this morning will just be on the first part. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And before we pass along to the teaching part of it, the apostles' teaching, let's consider for a few moments that we're devoted. Some of you might have in your translation continued steadfastly. What does it mean to continue steadfastly, to be devoted? It means, if you can picture this, to stay in a fixed direction, to continue doing something with intense effort, to consistently show strength that prevails in spite of difficulties. So devoted, staying in a fixed direction, intense effort, consistently show strength that prevails in spite of difficulties. Is that what comes to mind when we think about gathering together as a church? Does it characterize our lives as we gather together as the church? Does it characterize our lives as individuals of the church? But this is not just some vague or ambiguous devotion, but a persistent a persistence in four areas. As we read here, devotion to the word, devotion to one another, I'm paraphrasing here, devotion to the Lord's table, and devotion to prayer. We are to persist in doing these things. And today we will steep ourselves in just the first of these, because it is the fountain, this teaching is the fountain from which all of the other devotions flow. It is the foundation upon which we must build the others because without devotion to the word of God, the whole church crumbles. So it's no coincidence that the first priority of the church was to the apostles' teaching. For what do we read in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18? A passage known as the Great Commission.
There we read in Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always into the end of the age. So Jesus called his 11 disciples to him and told them to do what? He said, go and make disciples. And what is a disciple? We often think of a disciple as a follower, but at its root, a disciple is a learner. So those who were to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, were to make others who are followers of Jesus who learn from Jesus. And how were they to make disciples? What do we read there? In verse 19, Matthew 28, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So being devoted to the apostles' teaching is foundational to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I won't go through this morning, but if you look throughout the entire Bible, you'll see the importance of teaching. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word law has its root in the word um, instruction or to, to teach. Jesus himself was a teacher. We often think of him as a miracle worker, one who did signs and wonders. But I think it's interesting that in Luke's account of the gospel, the chief charge that was brought before him to Pilate was not about the miracles that he was doing. In fact, the chief charge that they brought before him was he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Oh, that we would likewise stir people up with our devotion to teaching. So we are to be a people who are devoted to teaching. We are to be people who say, bring the book, teach us. But no, it's not just the apostles who are devoted to this teaching or the, um, the church, but the apostles themselves who were devoted to this teaching. Um, if we're back in Acts, go to Acts 5. I'll just point this out briefly. There's a lot of places you could look there, but when I saw this, I thought we cannot leave this out. Acts 5. Here, we see that the Jewish authorities had told the apostles to stop teaching. They were even imprisoning the apostles. Once the, the prisoners by a miracle were released, they began to teach again. And they were told there, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And there we see in Acts 5 and verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must, we must obey God rather than men. Well, it didn't go better for the apostles then. In fact, they were beaten, and then they were released again and charged not to teach. Go down to verse 41. When they had left the presence of the council... They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple 
and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That is devotion. That is persistence. That's staying in a steadfast direction. It's not just for the people. It's for we as elders of the people. The one distinguishing feature of an elder of a church from a deacon is the ability to teach. That's why we're given this charge is to teach. So woe to us if we stop teaching. We need to be devoted and the people need to be devoted to this teaching. But what exactly is this teaching for back in Acts 2, 42? What is the apostles' teaching? Well, first of all, who are the apostles? They were those who were uniquely qualified in the early church to authoritatively pass on the teaching of Jesus Christ. They had signs. You can read this in Acts 2, verse 43. Signs were to accompany their teaching to validate who they were. But what was the content of their teaching? In some ways, you could say it's everything that we read in the Bible, but that's probably not super helpful what you're looking for this morning. We could say it's what, what, what Jesus taught in his gospel narratives or what was taught in the New Testament. Again, that's all good. It's all true, but maybe not super precise and helpful for us this morning. We can maybe even go to something like we read this morning, the Apostles' Creed. That's a good summary of what the Apostles taught. But I think it is always a good practice to look in the immediate context of what we've just read in the Bible to get an idea of what that is. So I would submit to you that what the apostles were teaching, the content of it, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can find elements of that gospel earlier in what we read in our scripture reading this morning from Acts 2, 14 and onward there. So I would submit to you that the apostles' teaching is the gospel. And there are four elements of the gospel. If you're a note taker, you may want to jot these down and we'll go back and revisit them. There are four elements to the gospel presentation. The first is God. The second is man or sin. Man and sin. The third is Christ. The fourth is a response. And the fifth, which is underlying all of this, is scripture. So again, five elements of any gospel presentation, any message of the gospel. God, sin, Christ, response, and scripture. And I'll briefly go through where we can even see this in Peter's sermon there. So we begin there in verse 17 how he starts his sermon here. He says, And in the last days it shall be God declares. As we read our Bibles, we will get everything wrong if we think the Bible is mainly about us and what we do. The Bible's primary message is about who God is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. If we look and take our Bibles in our hands, it's literally bookended by God, is it not? The first verse of the first chapter says, In the beginning God... And the last chapter in Revelation is talking all about God again. And more than just being about God, we see in the Bible that God is the chief actor in between there. So again, Acts 2, in verse 17, we read there, God declares in the last day, I will pour out my spirits. In verse 19, I will show wonders and signs. Verse 23, Christ's death was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 36, 
God has made him both Lord and Christ whom you crucified. Verse 39, and everyone God calls to himself. We cannot miss this. That this is chiefly and foremost, the gospel is about God. The second thing is sin. And the gospel is needed because of man's sin. Where do we see sin in Peter's sermon? Well, a couple places explicitly. Verse 23, Peter there says, You crucified this Christ and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36, this Christ you crucified. Verse 40, we see that it's not just those in the hearing, but Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So there is this um, sin that is pervasive throughout. So we begin with God. We address this need or this situation of sin. And the third, we talk about Christ. And the gospel points us to Christ who is both Lord and Savior. And we can see here that there are six ways, if you want to jot these down, there's six ways that Peter puts before the people, the hearers, that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 22, he was attested to by mighty works and wonders. Verse 23, he was attested to in his death. Verse 24, he was attested to in his resurrection. Verse 24 through 31, I cheated here a little bit. He's attested to by scripture. Verse 33, he was attested to be, to be the Messiah through his ascension and by the Holy Spirit poured out in their midst. Verse 33, he's attested to by the apostles' first-hand account. All of these attestations, if that's a word, I think maybe I just made it up, I don't know. Attestations to Jesus being the Christ were all to point to what we read in verse 38. That in the name of Jesus Christ, you may be saved from your sins. So we start with God, who he is. His holiness, his righteousness, his supremacy as the sovereign ruler of all. We come to our sin our sinfulness against this God, those in the hearing of this crucified Jesus, but we are a crooked generation. And the gospel points us to Jesus as the savior of those people. He is the Messiah that scripture points out. And oftentimes this is where we stop with our gospel presentation, is it not? But I said there was a fourth thing, which is that the gospel requires a personal response. The gospel is not this general proclamation going out, although it is that, don't get me wrong, it is that, but when we proclaim the gospel of someone, it is to those specific hearers of that presentation of the gospel. Here we see in verse 14, men of Judea, he addresses them, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. So it's not general, it's personal. And there was a response, was there not? We read in verse 37, these who heard this presentation of the gospel were cut to the heart, saying, what shall we do? And of course then, Peter had the answer to that question. He said, you are to repent and be baptized, every one of you. All who heard this word are to repent. All those who were cut to the heart are to repent and be baptized. And it's not just for those that heard it, 
but all who received his word. We are each accountable to what we hear, and we're each accountable to respond to what we hear by God's word. So God, sin, Christ, and our response to it, even this morning, we are responsible for what we hear. But we do not present the gospel apart from Scripture, but Scripture provides the means of interpreting one's own experience. Do we miss that there? It's kind of easy to do this, but the reason why Peter responded to them and presented this sermon was because they had seen these people speaking in tongues. There was a miraculous sign that was done. And so Peter goes to God's word and says, this is how you interpret what's happening here. It's from Joel. Let me read that to you. Or they're talking about this person, Jesus Christ, who was crucified. And he didn't make up who Christ was. He goes to scripture, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and says, this is what's happened to you. This is what is happening. So we are to be those who interpret our experiences by Scripture, not Scripture by our experiences. Let me say that again. We interpret our experiences by Scripture. We say, this is happening. Why is it? We go to God's Word. That's what's unchanging. We don't turn it the other way around and say, these are my experiences. Let me see if I can somehow mold God's Word to make it fit my experience. So we are to be a people who are devoted to the gospel. Every time that we teach and preach the, the apostles' teaching, it is the gospel. And it's known by many other things throughout uh, Acts even. It's the word of God. It's known as the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of the word. It's the preaching of Christ. It's preaching of the gospel. All these things encompass this. So what does this mean for us? If this was important to the early church, it ought to be important to us. So when we teach and when we preach, we never lose sight of those five things, that we are considering God, we're considering our sin, we're considering Christ, we're considering that there is a response that's needed, and we do it rooted in Scripture. How many so-called churches do not do this? But they place man at the center with Christ as a genie, as a means of gaining what it is that they want apart from Scripture. And they don't have a category for sin because we're all basically okay. The gospel is not that we are okay. The gospel is not that God is love. The gospel is not that Jesus wants to be our friend. And the gospel is not even that we should live rightly. Because we are not okay. God is not primarily love. God is primarily holy. God, more than wanting to be our friend, is our savior. And our whole problem is that we cannot live rightly. It's only Christ who's lived rightly. So this is the foundation from which our church should be built. Any church, I would argue, that is calls itself a church, ought to be built. Now, why is this? Why, why do I say this? I, I keep on saying it, and maybe you believe me, maybe you don't, I don't know, but why is the teaching the foundation from which all others flow? Why is this preaching of the word foundational? There are two reasons that we'll examine this morning. The first is the word of God is how God creates and builds his church. So why is teaching foundational? It's because the teaching of the Word of God, the Word of God, is how God creates and builds His church. We read that 
from the command of Jesus himself in Matthew 28 was to make disciples by teaching them. In fact, that's what we see here in Acts 2. That very thing has just happened. Peter preaches, and there is a response. Those who received or accepted his word were baptized, and then they were added. And to what were they added? I would argue that they were added to the church, to those who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So while we are saved individually, as the Lord ordains, our first order of business is to be baptized and added to a member of a local church. And we can see this throughout Scripture. I would leave that to you as good Bereans to examine that, where God speaks his word and there is life given. A place you may want to start is, well, Genesis 1 is a good place. But Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. What's said there? Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. So that's why the word is foundation to all we do while we center our life as a church around God's word, because we want spiritual life. We want that thing which no human means could accomplish. We've seen it already. We'll re-examine it here. That's, look at our Sunday services. We begin with a greeting taken from God's word. The songs we sing are filled with truth and teaching from God's word. We read God's word aloud. We pray God's word in light of what we just read from God's word. We see God's word made visible in the Lord's table. And then we hear God's word preached. We close our time together by meditating God's word and then receiving that final good word, our benediction, which comes to us from God's word. When Pastor Tyler and I pray every Sunday morning before service, that is what we pray. That this proclamation of God's word the good news of Jesus Christ would create something out of nothing in you and in all of us. That God would speak and light would shine forth in darkness. That God would raise those who are spiritually dead, those dry bones, they would be raised to new life in Christ. I wonder if to answer that first question, why are you here this morning, would it be because you need spiritual life. You want spiritual life. That is the foundation of why we gather together. But more so than just creating life, God's word sustains life. So why do we uh, put the God's teaching, his word, at the foundation of all these other devotions? The first is that it creates his people, it creates his church, but more than that, it sustains his church. It sustains life. It sustains life in two ways. One is by nourishment. We read this in Matthew 4, 4. Jesus was being tempted in the desert by Satan. He was starving. He was hungry. He's like, I can give you this food. And Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I think this is where many of us get it wrong. We think of our teaching time, our study of God's word, primarily as a time of attaining knowledge and facts. 
But God's word is much more than knowledge and facts. It is the very bread by which our souls are fed. And what would change about our lives if we viewed God's word this way? Would we be reluctant to read God's word or study God's word? Or we would, would we rather, like a starving man, not wanting to wait until the next meal, find any way that we could get a morsel from God's word at any moment of the day, at any time? And then when you have that opportunity, you feast upon that and you savor it. And you say, I can't wait till the next meal. I, I got to eat again. Is that how we view God's word? Our souls are starving. They need to be fed. And the only way that they can be fed is through God's word. Perhaps we don't have an appetite for God's word because we are too busy feasting on what the world has to offer us. And so we have lost that taste. We are full on those delights. And so we have no room for the delight of God's word. That leads to our second point. Why is the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, foundational? So we've seen it's how God builds his church. It's how God nurses his church. But it's also how God protects his church. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4. We'll examine where I get that from. God's word, the teaching of God's word, protects his church. Beginning in verse 1, 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And we could pause right there. It's a good truth for us to consider even just for a moment. We talked about this devotion as being this persistence in going in one direction. But we look here and we see that there are those who will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. The truth of the matter is we're devoted to something. We continue in one direction, all of us. We persist in doing something no matter what. Even if that thing is to our detriment, even if that thing is sin, we persist in doing that. And so there are those that Paul talks about here who will depart from the faith. Those at one point, or maybe sitting where you're sitting right now, under the teaching, have expressed faith in Christ, and they have, in the later times, departed from that by doing what? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. So, God's teaching, his word, protects us, which is why we emphasize it so much. Let's continue on to verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, this right teaching, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, 
Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set before the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in in love, in faith, in purity, until I come to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Devote yourself to this, we might add, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the teaching of God's word, the teaching of the apostles, is foundational to what we do as we gather together. It's foundational because it creates life. It's creational because it sustains life. It nourishes us week by week, day by day, and it protects us. It keeps us in the faith. So the question that we have for us this morning is one that I cannot answer, but one we ought to ask ourselves is, do we truly see the devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the gospel, as the essential foundation upon which this church or any church must be built? Is this of first importance of what we do and what we want as a church? Is the consistent and faithful proclamation of the gospel Sunday after Sunday, whether in season or out of season, is that the fountain of which all else we must do must flow? How do we test ourselves if that's what we want? Is this what we demand, what you come expecting as you walk through the doors on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night? Do you demand that from Tyler and myself. You bring that book, elder, pastor, you bring that book. And if we fail to bring that book, if we fail to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, would you say that this church is no longer a church and I must leave? You might be thinking, well, I agree, I agree. That's the foundation. That's the foundation of the church, yes. But is that all there is? I want you to preach the gospel, but I got some things going on in my life. <laughs> I got my marriage, my kids. I got my work situation is terrible. I got these health problems. Can you give me something useful? Can you give me something that I can apply, something I can take with me? To which I would say, yes. And if you read the epistles of the New Testament, it talks about all this application in the second half of the letters, but what does the first half of the letter start with? A presentation of the gospel, a grounding in who people are in Christ. What would it profit you if I could give you all these things that would help your marriage, that would help you with your children, that would help you with work, that would maybe give you some hope for your health if I couldn't give you the gospel from which all of that applies, all of that flows Or perhaps you're like, yes, yes, preach the gospel, but you know what I really want 
It's a thriving youth program. I want a singles ministry. I want uh, small groups. I want outreach. I want food pantry visits. All good things to which I would say, yes, yes, these are good things. But they must be rooted in the gospel. In fact, that's what we see there in Acts 2. Where we find ourselves in Acts 2.42 is not where they are at in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, and onward. It wasn't until Acts 6 that there were ministries of mercy, the deacons. It wasn't until chapter 8 that there were foreign missions and the church went out and preached the gospel beyond their borders. So I will readily admit we are not all that we can be. We are not all that we should be. But we don't get to be where we should be and where we can be apart from where we begin on the foundation of the teaching of God, of Christ, of the gospel. Let's go one, one last place, and I'll show this to you. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2. We want to place God's word at the center of all we do because we want to place Christ at the center of all we do. He is the church's foundation. Acts 2, beginning in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is the church, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel as though we've just scratched the surface of what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. But I pray, Lord, that what was scratched, what was revealed, is used by you to stir up your people, to provoke them to love and to good works, Lord, that we would be like this church we read about in Acts 2, that we'd be like this church we read about in Ephesians 2, a church that is growing into a holy temple, a dwelling place for you by your spirit. That we won't be a light in darkness, that we might be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, 
Lord, that you might receive all the glory due your name in Christ and that we might rejoice with all those who call upon the name of the Lord. It's in his name I pray. Amen.